you know, I could clearly see what had happened to me. So my right leg was blown off. It was no longer there. My left leg was degloved from my ankle to my knee. Wow. I damaged my right arm. So I've got a, a oh. hole in my arm. Oh, yeah. Um, and I lost my right testicle, which was irritating because it was one of my favourites. Welcome to the Fit Mind Project. My name's Barry Ash, and along with my wife, Laura Ash, we are the founders of Rock Solid Health and the Freedom Programs. We believe that everybody should have access to a simple and supportive way to transform their health and their well-being, both physically and mentally, so we can feel better than we currently do. Our aim is to bring together a community of like-minded people who want to transform their habits and their behaviours, using the rock-solid methods so they can take ownership of their health and their well-being. With this podcast, we're going to be having conversations with some amazing people, that will help and inspire you to take back control of your lives. As we believe, when we are healthier, we are happier. Today's episode is all about finding gratitude. Gratitude is a powerful tool that we all have within us. We can use gratitude to manage any situation. Gratitude can help us turn bad situations into more positive ones. But if you find this hard to do, then keep listening in because we're having a conversation with Simon Harmer who is a combat medic fighting in Afghanistan. He's a blast survivor and a double amputee. Find out how gratitude powers Simon to do what he does today. So let's head over to the conversation. Good morning. Hello. Welcome to um, this talk today. Um, we are really excited about this. Uh, we've got somebody who is really a, a personal inspiration to me and Baz. And I know by the time we finish this, he's going to be an inspiration to you as well. Um, we're joined today by the amazing Simon Harmer. Um, and we're going to be talking today about being able to turn any situation in your life into a positive because I think we all struggle with that. And what Simon has to tell you today and talk to you about today, trust me, you're going to be able to do that. So just a little bit about um, Simon. So Simon um, kind of describes himself as a public speaker, an amputee, a veteran, a blast survivor, an open water swimmer, and a WIS um, advocate, which I'll ask you about in a bit, Simon. Um, and we're going to be hearing all about his story. Um, Simon joined the army in 1997 as a combat medic and obviously a soldier. And in 2009, his life was changed. And he's going to tell you all about that. But he, what he's done is he's been able to rebuild his life. And he's thrown himself into multiple challenges around the world. And he's also volunteered for service charities. And one of his passions is being able to speak about his experience so we can give back to the wider community so yeah can't wait to uh, for you guys to experience this so guys i'm going to hand over to simon welcome my love good morning good morning i've been looking forward to this yeah yeah me it's too not as much as we have <laughs> <laughs> i love it no, it's great to invite. i really appreciate it so simon let's kick off then right and literally just tell us your story tell us about how you've come to be sat here you know talking to us today so yeah i joined the army in 97 um 
I had a plan when I was at school, uh, which didn't really actually involve joining the army. I wanted to become a fireman and uh, I did my work experience with the Hampshire Fire Brigade and they gave me a little uniform and, and um, off I popped for two weeks to do my work experience with Hampshire Fire Brigade. It was an awesome experience. Um, when I left school, you know, like a lot of kids, um, I left without any, any qualifications, which I'll be honest with you, was my fault and nobody else's. Um, I was easily distracted and, and uh, that was, you know, that was just one of my problems, I think. Um, so I needed a new plan. I still wanted to join the fire brigade, but it was never going to happen without any qualifications. So I decided to join the military. I wanted to join something that uh, gave me a trade. And I thought joining as a medic would give me the tools and the experience and the qualifications to eventually leave and then join the fire brigade. Um, I was having too much fun though. Uh, it was, you know, the, the British Army for me was, it made me, it made me into a man, let's put it that way. Um, and I did all the usual things when, when I first joined. So the first three years, I wasn't even in the, in the UK very much. Um, you know, I was, I was, I was out constantly so within when i got to my first unit um we went to cyprus for a two-month exercise which was in preparation to go to bosnia uh, for a winter tour and i was there for six months i came back from 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 bosnia um i went on on a on another medical training course uh, then i went to egypt for, for a month's uh, exercise training exercise which was a multinational exercise um and then I came back from there. Uh, I went to Canada for another month, in fact, two months um, on another training exercise. And I did loads of adventurous training at the end of it, which was a month's worth of, um, of being outside. Uh, I then came back and one of my mates had decided that he wanted to do cross country skiing, but he, um, he dropped out. And um, he then had a course that he, had booked in to go and do and I had to drop out so I said to him right I'm going to take your place and uh, I said to him and I'm going to be a much better cross-country skier than you you would have been because um, you know we were just always trying to outdo each other with, with different things and anyway I went cross-country skiing and I was out of the country from sort of late when sort of early winter to uh, the new year so for me, the army was just about traveling around the place and getting out and, and going and seeing things. And um, I, I did five initial operational tours, or um, tours. I went to Bosnia twice. Um, I went to Iraq in 2003 for the invasion there, which has obviously turned out quite well for everybody. Um, six months, six weeks after returning from uh, Iraq, I went to the Congo. Um, and then I was a, a recruiting structure for a while, as well as um, um, working with the, with the reserves as a permanent staff instructor. And then after getting back into the army again, uh, as it were, because when you, when you do a job like a recruiting instructor or working with the reserves, you're kind of taken out of the, the field army mm -hmm. and you're ring fenced and you can't be deployed. Yeah. And then when you go back again, then, you know, you're, you're deployable. So, um, and, and then I was, I was obviously, you know, we were set up to go to Afghanistan. Um, you know, 2009 was a busy year for me. I got married that year um, on the 1st of August. Um, you know, we had a, a, a lovely day. We went on a honeymoon to Kenya for, you know, sort of a few days of safari and then just to enjoy the warm weather. 
and then I came home and then, you know, we had two months of us being together as, as a married couple. And then I was off to Af Afghanistan. Um, now, initially, my job was to stay in Camp Bastion and, and work in the HQ and uh, in, in, a, in a medical capacity, you know, making decisions about what um, was sent out to go and pick up casualties. And, and you know, what we sent out was helicopters. It was our decision what to send out. So, um, you know, it was it was a busy time for me, but I never did that job. I never I never actually experienced that job at all, because as soon as I landed in Afghanistan, um, I was told that they need more medics on the ground. So I was going out to a place called PB4, Patrol Base 4. Yeah. I was out there for, I was on the ground for a month out in Afghanistan. And initially I was out there with the Light Dragoon Battle Group. And it was there, they'd been out there for not, for, for considerable time and they were battle weary. They they were, as a as a, um, a battle group, they were really, they were injured. Uh, a lot of them had been, you know, unfortunately had been killed. Um, it was a really, really busy time for them. Um, and I came in with a, to a group of guys that were looking to go home. They still had a job to do, but they were looking forward to going home. Mm. And then the um, uh, the Coltrane guards, they ripped in, and that's just a fancy, we used to call it that, they're ripping in, uh, but it's replacement in post. And uh, and they they took over from the, uh, the Light Dragoons. And, um, you know, I was with them for probably only about, it was just over a week, I think. It was probably about 10 days, I think. And then um, on the 26th of October 2009, which is a Monday, um, everything everything changed. So I got up really early that morning, um, grabbed my kit. I didn't want to wake the rest of the guys up in, that I was sharing a space with. Uh, you know, my weapon, my rucksack, which was really heavy, my body armor, my helmet and all the bits and pieces, went out, uh, had my breakfast. Um, it was probably about three o'clock at that point in the morning. Uh, we were going to leave our patrol base to go on a, an extended patrol. And I remember going around to the front of our little camp, um, our little um, our little compound, and waiting for the rest of the guys to, to sort of all form up and, and uh, prepare ourselves to go out. So eventually everybody turned up and um, off we set in single file. And I got about 150 metres when I activated an improvised explosive device, an IED. And uh, I was thrown in the air and I landed on, you know, I landed on the floor unconscious. And I was only unconscious for about three or four seconds. And, and in my head, I remember being unconscious and it was like being in the Millennium Falcon going through hyperdrive. And there was a few questions that appeared in front of me. Am I injured? Is anybody else injured? And can I treat them? When I woke up, it, amongst the dust and the smoke and the flashes of light and, you know, there was a bit of gunfire going on. Um, it was a bit of a, a battle between me, sort of us and them. And then, you know, I could clearly see what had happened to me. So my right leg was blown off. It was no longer there. My left leg was degloved from my ankle to my knee. Wow. I damaged my right arm. So I've got a, a oh. hole in my arm. Oh, yeah. Um, and I lost my right testicle, which was irritating because it was one of my favourites. <laughs> um, <laughs> still missing. Still missing. <laughs> Anyway, so I was in a bad way and I was, I was bleeding out, you know, I needed medical attention, but I wasn't a priority at that point. There was other things for the team to sort out. Um, eventually they did make me a priority. So they had to get the, you know, the metal detectors back out again to come and clear a route to me. And they soon got me on a, on a sort of a fabric stretcher and, and pulled me out. I 
when I got outside the patrol base, which was only about, you know, like I said, 150 meters away, that's where they, they, the guys saved my life. You know, there's no two ways about it. They stopped me bleeding. They put tourniquets around my limbs. They dressed my wounds. They gave me injections. Um, and they saved, you know, they saved my life. I soon found myself after a short helicopter ride um, on a Chinook um, back in Camp Bastion, um, waiting to go into the emergency department. And um, being in the in a sort of the pitch black, and then going for the light, it was it was different. I felt I felt almost secure and safe in the dark. And when I was exposed to the sort of the bright lights above me, yeah. it was um, it was it was it was it's not that I didn't feel safe I just things changed for me it was like a change yeah. and I couldn't you know at that point the pain was too it was too much um I couldn't hold on to that pain and I just kind of I didn't you know I almost begged them to put me to sleep really? um because I couldn't there's nothing else I could do as in I couldn't hold on any longer mm. uh I was soon taken through to surgery and I was obviously sedated on that Monday morning um, and they obviously performed life-saving and life-changing surgery on me Um, and uh, you know I was there was a plan made to take me back to the UK and and in fact I was back in the UK on that on the Tuesday morning but just to step back again briefly I know little bits of the surgery I had and just to give an example the the average adult male has got around five to six litres of blood in him Uh, I was given 50 litres 50 wow. units which is 25 litres of blood wow and I was given half that again in plasma so you know to save my life um you know there was a lot of effort you know um and you know I'm eternally grateful for what the for you know those people did for me mm. um so that Tuesday morning I was back in the UK having more surgery I had more surgery on the Wednesday and then eventually I was waking up on a Friday. And I remember waking up and seeing my wife at the bottom of my bed. And there was a nurse to the right of me. And my arm was sort of strapped up and um, hanging there. And I, was, I couldn't really speak properly. Um, my mouth was dry. And it felt like I was kind of drunk a little bit. Yeah. And um, I, was trying to, I was trying to signal to the nurse. And uh, she wasn't really sure what I was, I was, I was going on about. And... Um, and she said, you know, what's he, what's he trying to say to my wife? And my wife said, I think he's trying to high-five you. And I was. Because when I woke up, although things were bad, I was alive. And I, and to me, that was a hurdle. As in, you know, I, I was alive and I, I knew that things were going to be okay. I didn't know what that okay looked like, but I knew things, it was going to be all right. Things were going to be okay. Anyway, I was, only, I was in hospital for about five weeks um and there was a kind of a moment in hospital which i I don't know if you want to leave for later um but perhaps we'll come back to that later on um but uh yeah i was only there for five weeks i obviously quite a lot of surgery during that time and i soon found myself uh down at headley court and headley court was the rehabilitation center for all service personnel that had been injured um and it wasn't just um you know obviously combat injuries it was training injuries it was all sorts of different conditions that were there but at that time when I was there there was a lot of blokes missing limbs um or suffering from gunshot wounds or you know and and that type of stuff so we were all in the same boat um all effectively trying to get back on our feet 
Yeah. And I, I did manage to do that. You know, I, I um, had a bet with my consultant. I'd be on my legs uh, before Christmas. So less than two months after I was injured, albeit in a pair of, you know, in, in between a set of parallel bars, I was off on my legs and taking tentative steps forward. Um, and you know, that it was it was quite quick to do that. And, and it was the 17th of December, 2009, when I was up on my legs. I wasn't allowed to take my legs home. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't competent enough. Um, but it was, it was a real um, sort of milestone for me. Um, so, you know, I, I really wanted to get back on the horse, whatever that horse looked like. And I was given an opportunity to go skiing in, in the March. I didn't tell them that my arm was still broken. Um, it was pinned, so it was, it was stable, but it wasn't it wasn't fully mended. Anyway, I went skiing on a sit ski, and uh, you know you have to use your arms to steer with. Um, and I remember first getting on this thing. It, I felt quite. I thought I was going to injure myself again. To be fair, um, but by the end of the week, I was getting airborne. I was doing black runs, and in fact. <laughs> I've got it in my diary. I had this diary that I kept, and on the 26th of March, so five months after I've been injured, I did a I did a black run on a on this sit ski. Wow! Oh my god! And how steep how steep are those black runs? They're like near on vertical, aren't they? Yeah, it was. It was. And to be honest with you, I I, I like skiing. Um, it's alpine skiing for me isn't proper skiing. Cross country skiing is proper skiing. Um, so I enjoy skiing. However. I get more enjoyment from doing the things that aren't a red and a black run. Let's put it that way. Um, I still take risks, you know, but um, I do get more enjoyment from just not doing red and black runs. Yeah. Um, one thing I did get a chance to do was swim again. I hadn't properly swum since I'd been in, you know, since, well, actually, since I'd probably been on holiday. Yeah. So um, I remember getting off my wheelchair and all, the, all these, you know, I was being stared at by a lot of the people around me. But as soon as I got in the water, no one could see me. They could just see my head and I was a normal person again. And I was kind of like stood up. My legs were flat and I was stood up in the water. And I thought I'd give, you know, swimming a go. And I did a lot of turning around in circles and drowning. But I knew that um, at that point, um, I, I had something to work towards. I knew, I knew that with a lot of training and, uh, you know, uh, practice, that I'll be able to swim again and, and do it competently and and um, and you know that's what I that's what I that's what I did. I, I set myself a goal um, and um, and chased that dream, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. While you're talking about all your adventures and your skiing and your swimming, can I just touch because I, I went through your website and I've seen that you seven years ago you actually was part of a team that cycled across America. Can you touch on a little bit of that while we're talking about the activities that you get up to? Yeah, so that was, that was actually eight years ago. Um, um, I got into, so again, I didn't think, so I used to do triathlon and uh, I didn't think being on a handbike would offer me the same experience as being on a bike again. So I was a little bit sort of, I was, I was ambivalent about being on a handbike, to be honest with you. I got a chance to go on one at heavy court and I was a little bit hooked. And... Um, you know, I initially did a few sort of charitable things where uh, we did like a, these these um, these uh, battlefield bike rides they were called, and um, 
we uh, we raised money cycling across northern France and visiting a lot of the sort of the cemeteries and the, and the graves over there. And then the idea was put to us to do this um, this race across America. So there was a you know I think we did about I don't think it was long as a year, but it was probably not far off a year's worth of training. And there was a big group of us initially, but as with all these things, people they drop off. So the team kind of selected itself of who was left. So there was four guys on normal stand-up bikes um, and four guys on hand bikes. And um, the idea being that we, we cycled the race across America as a relay. So one bloke was on the, on the road at any one time. Um, and obviously, you know, we went over the, over the Rockies. We went over the Appalachian Mountains. We cycled 12 different states. Um, I never, ever want to go to Kansas again. Um, <laughs> it was undulating. Um, so it was just bumpy all the time and we seemed to have like really really it was it was quite windy but always from our right and even if we turn left it never seemed to be behind us so if we had that wind behind us we would have rocketed through but it was really really hard work going to Kansas and, and I now know why Dorothy left I don't want to go to Kansas yeah. <laughs> you know, Kansas uh, sort of uh, citizens, but um, perhaps I'll just go for, to drive through next time. Yeah. You know, it was an incredible experience and one I'll never forget. Um, you know, we had some amazing experiences over there and met some incredible people. And, um, you know, we raised a lot of money for charity. Um, and that's pretty much why all of us, all the guys that I've sort of rehabilitated with, that's why we do these challenges is usually to raise money for charity. Right. It was a great. It was a great experience. And, and how long did it take you to do? Sort of. How long did it take you to do? Seven days, seven hours, and thirty-eight minutes. And okay. and wow. I mean, that, it was a good time. But you know, some of the guys, a couple of the guys, redid that. Um, they redid it a couple of years ago, and they knocked nearly twenty-four hours off that time. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, they obviously they went for it. Um, incredible, and, and and what a way to see America. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that is that's Not incredible. Um, I've got a question for you, um, Simon. Just going to take you right back to when you stood on the IED and you said you were laying there, um, and you know, obviously they had to do other things before they came to you. You weren't a priority. What was going through your head at that point? Well, I was really, I was scared. I'll be honest with you, I was scared, and I did think I was going to die. I didn't think I was going to make it back to the UK. Um, I didn't think I was going to see my wife again. Um, and yeah, it there was a there was uh, there was pretty much only a few things that were going through my head, and it was a cycle of pain, uh, fear, and I suppose. Um, yeah, fear that I was going to die, but also fear that I wasn't going to see Marissa again and that I was going to leave her on her own. I didn't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's almost like the the most important things come in at that point. Do you know what I mean? You realise yeah. what is important at, at that kind of time, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there was very, you know, there was very little else to think about because, yeah. I mean, I, I think the most feeling I had really was the fact that I was in so much pain so much and it was it was it was almost the pain was fighting with itself to be more painful than the next bit so wow. and it was I remember it being like a 
it was like a ball of energy that I had to really concentrate on. So when I was lying there, I just wanted to keep my eyes closed. And obviously, to any clinician, they don't want you to keep your eyes closed. They want your eyes open. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, you know, I'd been there. I, I, told, I told casualties, keep your eyes open. But actually, it was the wrong thing to say because I just I wanted to be able to concentrate on that pain yes. and, um, and deal, with it in, deal with it myself as well. Yeah. So, so moving forward from when you stood on there and you, you went back to Camp Bastion and then you went back to the hospital, what surprised you when you got into the hospital? So, uh, I, one, obviously I was, well, there's a few things that I suppose. One, I was on a ward with a, a bunch of people that are treated as, and there'd been casualties before me. So there were three guys on that ward um, who'd received gunshot wounds. Yeah. Um, and two of them I'd helped treat. Um, another guy that was in the bay behind me, um, I treated him three weeks before I got injured and he was a double amputee. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, he's done, Nick's done some amazing stuff since leaving uh, Heli Court. He's a Paralympian. He's yeah. got a bronze medal. Um, he's got a family. Um, you know, he's doing some amazing things. Um, so, you know, being on the same ward as people I treated, I was in the bed next to a guy I treated. Yeah. They'd been shot in the face and gone, the round had gone into his shoulder. Mm. Um, so that was a, the sort of the first surprise. The second surprise was how many people came to visit me. Um, I was literally in, they almost had to sort of like make a booking for people to come and see me because like people I knew, people I didn't know, uh, and and you know by the end of that first week I was exhausted just from the amount of people I see saw and I didn't really get a chance to to see Marissa um, a huge amount during that first week and then that week that first weekend um, so sort of like two weeks after I've been injured um, I was just spent and I let I, I basically slept the whole weekend yeah um, but it was also a surprise that who didn't come to see me so. You know, some of my friends, some of you know, a couple of my best friends never, never came to see me in hospital, mm. both military and civilian. And um, and I, I haven't seen some of them. I haven't seen since. Um, and 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 I guess it gets to a point where you kind of like you don't know what to say to someone, and then yeah. you leave it, and then you too much time has passed. And then you don't know what to say because there's no way to do a regain. So I get it, I understand it, but at the time, it did it hurt. It did hurt. Yeah, I can imagine. And as you say, I think a lot of people just don't know what to say, and so they yeah. avoid you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and I get that because we've all done it. Yeah. Um, and um, and I, there's no really easy, easy solution. You don't get like a pamphlet on what to do when when a loved one or a friend ends up in hospital, you know, what do you, cause you want to give people room. Uh, you don't want to intrude. You think you might be doing the same, doing, saying the wrong thing or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then too much time goes under the, under the bridge and, um, you know, you, you don't know what, you don't know. There's no way to do a regal, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what, when, when we first met you, Simon, it was in Tunbridge, I think and you was doing the Ted talk there. And yeah. one thing that came across to me was your sense of humour around this. Me and Loz come from the prison and the police service, and we've got dark humour when it comes to dealing with horrible situations. And I think you've got the same sort of humour as we've got. 
Uh, yeah. I remember you telling a story about when you was in hospital and your seniors come along to, um, to see you and stuff. And if you can share with the, the listeners what you would say to them, I just think it's phenomenal that you can bring out the humour in this dark, this horrible situation that you've been put in. Yeah, so I mean, obviously we used to get a lot of visitors and, and often there'd be um, senior officers um, and uh, if they came into my bedroom, if they came into my bed space, I would kind of like pretend to brace up and which is standing to attention. So you, you brace up to stand to attention. So I brace up in my bed and stand to attention and say, my heroes are together, but it is not in this country. Um, and I, I suppose what, what it was, was to kind of break the ice a little bit and give them the opportunity where they could, they knew they were walking into a room where um, they didn't have to be sad, if that makes sense. And I remember one of, one, quite a senior officer who I'm really, really good friends with now, he, he's a clinician by trade and um, he'd, he'd gone through the whole of, of uh, S4 um, and every single sort of bay on, on that ward. And he was, it really deeply affected him by the time he got to my bed space. And I was, you know, I was in bay six at the end of the, uh, of the end of the, uh, this ward. And um, he knew I was a medic and he was a medic as well. And he just looked battered he just looked he was he was carrying a lot of what he saw and uh and um and i said to him he's got he's quite a thinker he's quite uh he's got a very nice sort of language and he said to me and i and i said to him are you are you okay sir and he looked at me and said sergeant Hammer, um this is the wrong paradigm i think i should be asking you if you're all right and uh you know we were kind of friends after that um and he knew that I'd been doing my own physio in my bed. So I'd been, I, and it was basic stuff. So I'd been moving my legs up and down and I'd been breathing in deeply to try and fill my lungs. So my lungs didn't get infected. So I'd been doing bits and pieces in my bed space myself. And he knew that. And um, he said, oh, Sontheim, are you, are you doing your physio now? I said, no, sir, I've, I've just got um, some trapped wind. I'm just, I just need to get rid of it. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, you know, we like I said, we've been we've been mates ever since. And um, you know, it was just a, it was a. I just wanted to hit to, to give anybody that came into my room. I wanted to give them the breathing space to be normal, yeah. and um, knew that they were going to come in into my bed space, and it was going to be um, as close to humorous as you could get. Yeah, I th I think that's phenomenal because it's so easy to go down that dark hole of why me, why has this happened to me, and you you. Where do you get this power from? Because I think it's a superpower to spin it around to think about the other person in, in that situation. In my mind, because that was the question I was going to ask. Like <laughs> a lot of people just, would be in victim mode. Yeah. Why me? You know this sort of stuff. But like you just seem. I to thought. I thought a lot about that statement. Why me? Um, and actually, I think I, although it did go through my head, um, if you carry on, if there's only one answer to why me, and that answer is why not me. And once you can get to that place, once you can get to that place of why not me, then actually it's quite liberating because why shouldn't you have missed the bus? Or why shouldn't you have been made redundant from your job? Um, or why shouldn't you have not got the job? Or uh, why, you know, there's no, there's no lottery of life. There's no someone dishing out um, bad luck because bad luck doesn't exist for a start. Um, 
it's just that's just life and once you get to the point of saying um well why not me then you can move on because then you can accept that it's happened to you and there's only there's only room for 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 moving on from what's happened to you and compartmentalizing what's happened to you because if i mean if it wasn't you it'd be somebody else and whatever you're going through you wouldn't want to wish on somebody else right you know you wouldn't want to wish somebody else missing the bus or not get you wouldn't want to say to somebody else unless you're a particularly unpleasant person um that you wouldn't want to miss you know that well what I, I, for me it's just why not me because otherwise you're wishing what you've got on somebody else and, and nobody would wish anything on anybody else i don't think yeah and i think the other thing that really struck me from when we kind of saw your ted talk and i say this to all of my clients was your attitude around gratitude oh my god that rhymes attitude around gratitude and you know how you came back uh, you know what you were saying at the nurse in terms of what you was going to do when she suggested about you practicing gratitude can you share that with us yeah so um i remember like you know i was in my bed space probably feeling a bit sorry for myself and she said to me um to try and find um three good things from from this one bad thing and as i was laying there i thought no it can't be three it's got to be five and so as i was laying there for me i felt my or as i learned to to think about it it was my job to find um good things as a result of what had happened to me yeah yeah and, and then actually what you end up doing is hunting you have to go and hunt those things and you you have to make a plan uh, and set goals and and um and hopefully achieve them to find those good things whatever it is and those things are uh, the race across america or going skiing or for me they had, they had to start small so going down to the country girl which was the local pub was a rite of passage at headley at um at say oak hospital yeah. and once you'd gone to the pub and had a pint down there it was a point where your your time at Selyak was coming to an end and you you knew you were going to be going down to to Headley Court. So just going for a point down there was that was a goal and that was something that was good. Um or seeing my friends or or watching Homes Under the Hammer on the TV or having a conversation with my mate who was who was um out in a out in the in the Middle East. He phoned me up on my on my on my phone that was on in my bed um and having a conversation all these things um were the small things that allowed me to to sort of to move on but one thing i will say is a lot of my recovery was built on what i did beforehand okay the foundations of my recovery were built on what i did beforehand so all those things all those events all the adventurous training all the sport um all the experiences i had they were the foundations that i built my recovery on yeah um because I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't lying in bed remembering the time that I did an expedition down the Athabasca River. That was what I was, that was what I was thinking about. It wasn't the time I bought um, an iPad, or there wasn't iPads then, but there, it wasn't the time I bought a, a game, my Game Boy when I was a kid. I wasn't thinking of that moment. Yeah. I was thinking of that time I, I did something. I did, I abseiled, I cycled, um, I went on holiday. Uh, they, those were the things I was thinking about. It wasn't about what I bought and what I'd owned beforehand. They were those materialistic things weren't the things that got me. They weren't the things that got me through being injured or being hurt. 
it was like the the physical experiences and it almost seems as well for you simon the one thing that helped you to deal with this situation in a positive way is that you had goals that you you were like right i'm going to have goals it's almost like you went into a survival mode would you say yeah a little bit um yeah i i mean some of them are just like sort of there was no plan necessarily um there weren't they weren't goals that i wrote down and said right you've got to check this off this off this off they were just thing they were just um i knew i had a i had to aim for something and i just had to find out it was almost like um you know searching in the dark and and finding those things by accident but trying things out along the way so you know whatever those things were um i tried a few things out so um to see what fitted um, and see what i enjoyed and and although you know i still i use my hand bike in the garage i don't particularly like going out on the road in it because it's pretty it, road users don't like something that's odd on the road and yeah and a hand bike on the road, it, 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 it um it upsets them yeah um so it's in my garage and i just used throughout lockdown i've used it as a turbo on the turbo trainer but you know my passion now is is open water swimming and and the longer the distance the better um and actually uh over over the winter i was um i was getting into um cold water swimming and um um i wanted to do the ice mile so the ice mile is um swimming a mile obviously in temperatures below five degrees um and this year the water didn't get that it didn't get that low but um i wanted to do it really to so all these things i think about doing i go with the thought of thinking right anybody can achieve this anybody can anybody can do it because a lot of people they'll do these challenges and they'll make it sound that nobody else can do it yeah and they'll set it up where they don't give permission for anybody else to don't go and do those different things because they they, they set it up to be almost impossible with it they're clearly they're not because that person's achieved it yeah but if i can so i've swam uh, windermere a few times and it's it's 11 miles 11 mile swim um and uh, you know that's a that's a that's a it's 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 a big it's longer than, for me it's longer than doing a sort of a marathon it's a longer in in swimming terms it's longer um for me it takes about six and a half hours to swim that um wow you know so in in running terms that would be a double marathon for some people yeah yeah do you get any propulsion with your legs, Simon, when you when you're swimming? Nothing. It says all upper body. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. So uh, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed doing that. But the cold water swimming again with a little bit of training, anybody can go and do that. And the benefits that I get from it are huge. You know. Um, cold water therapy is is meant to be really good for you i mean you have a cold shower every day yes, don't you? but it's not just it's psychologically and physiologically it makes a big difference doesn't it yeah i mean you know there's a reason why people use cold compresses um so you know after training for example um you know jump in a cold shower because it will sort you out and and um you know dig a little bit deeper and do a little bit of research but cold cold water and cold water immersion is is um 
yeah, it's, it really helps me and actually it can help everybody. Amazing. I love that. Just moving on. I've got, I've got some, I've got loads of questions that I want to ask you. Now, can you just describe the word gratitude in your own words? Where does that come from, from you? All right. It's really simple for me, really. Um, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those guys that carried me off the front line, the medics that treated me on the ground in Afghanistan, the pilots that came in to come and, and you know, to, to take me um, back to Camp Bastion, um, all those clinicians um, that's, that, that kind of stabilised me in, in Afghanistan, and then all those clinicians back in the UK. So I've been operated on in 2009, 10, 11, 13 and 17. Um, I don't really know how many operations I've had. I've had a lot. Um, so if I didn't live my life in, in, and I'm not perfect by any stretch of the margin, but if I didn't try to live my life in some sort of, um, with some sort of sense of gratitude, it'd, dis it'd be disingenuous to the people that helped me. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking earlier on and, and I know how much blood I was given. Um, so in, 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 in Camp Bastion, I was, I was given... 50 units which is uh, 25 litres and half that again in plasma um that's a lot of blood and that came from 50 people that i'll never meet in fact more than 50 people yeah um, how can i be you know i can't thank them individually and but i can try and live my life in such a way which which hopefully um you know i hope hopefully i'm living it in a good and positive way yeah, you well, you absolutely are, and and that leads me on to my next question, in terms of like you've taken this whole situation and incident that has happened to you, and you've gone into motivational speaking, you know, um, whether it be the TED talk into schools, primary schools, into um, secondary schools, helping other veterans, that sort of thing. Can you tell us about like? your motivational speaking and why it's so important and why you're doing it yeah so i mean i've been fortunate i've, I've done you know i've spoken in front of some incredible organizations and, and and businesses but where i get the most satisfaction is working with um so blesmer have got a um a program which that which is run by a company called the drive project and the program is called generation r generation resilience and we run workshops in schools. Um, so we've been to schools, colleges, universities. I've done quite a lot with NHS on the back of it. Um, and I've even been to um, HM Prison in Swansea. Nice. We have a talk down there. Um, we talk about resilience and how it, it, it is in with everybody, but it has to be sort of developed and understood and 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 worked out from an individual level yeah. and i know both of you guys um you know you've had to develop your resilience over the years um so it's in every it's in everybody and it's personal to you but everybody has it yeah uh, we talk about the challenges particularly that young people face um the threats that they face you know um but also like coping strategies what are positive coping strategies yeah. but also what negative coping strategies look like and you know so the coping strategies that i sort of enjoy um and i, and I try to live by is raising, raising your heart rate even if it's just a little bit being outside in the fresh in the fresh air yeah um 
and I think everybody can achieve those three sort of being outside in the fresh air and raising your heart rate I think everybody can do those three different things yeah um even if it's just a little bit uh you don't have to go and do the race across America or swim Lake Windermere but I think um you know even if it's just going for a walk in your local park that's better than nothing yeah and everybody can do that yeah and that was going to be one of my questions was going to be what are your kind of tips for helping people basically turn shit to sugar <laughs> you know yeah. um would they be your top three things yeah i think so and, and um um you know to try and obviously to try and find the good from the bad um and one thing I, i'm a bit of a I, I love reading and um i read a lot and then you know, sometimes that's difficult with three children but um so i listen to a lot of books now as well yeah but i think life is like a book um and you know if you if you keep on reading the same chapter of your book yeah uh and revisiting the past you can't move forward and, and the whole idea of a book is you've got to keep on turning the pages to find out what happens mm -hmm. and if you find that actually halfway through that book you have to change books and reinvent yourself then that's what you have to do and but for me it's, it's about turning the pages of of your chapters of your life to finding out what happens and and sometimes you've got to re you've got to write those pages yourself yeah um and um yeah like i said you know we can learn from the past but those chapters we've read we've got to keep on finding out what the book how the book ends yeah absolutely i know um when we spoke to chris akabusi once uh, he said the past is for reference not for residence and yeah. I love that saying. It rings so true, doesn't it? It does. It does. I use it every single day. Yeah. You can't. You can go back and look what you've done wrong and what you did right, and we can use that for the future. We can't go back and live there. Just wallow in it. Then. Chris Akabusi. So I, um, I was a, a unit physical training instructor, and he was a physical training instructor in the British Army as well. And where you do your training, which is in Aldershot, I'm pretty sure that his name is still. He's still got records in the British Army as a. Uh, for some of the long distance running he did or some of the running he did i'm oh, pretty sure that he's yeah. still a record holder for some of those for that some of those uh, things that he did all those years ago amazing absolutely amazing and um, one question i was going to ask you was like what do you see your life's purpose or your life's mission being now apart from irritating my wife daily um, <laughs> uh, i haven't really thought about that i think i I don't know. It's just, I think about my kids and and trying to be there and 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 bring them them up in a in a positive way. Um, and again, I think Marissa does a lion's share of that. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I I think it's. I think it probably goes back to being, you know, the gratitude thing and just trying to keep in the back of my mind. Um, you know to be positive you know leaving the forces was was particularly hard and not because it was i was going to miss it and of course i did but actually the resettlement leaving the forces um, wasn't really fit for, for for purpose and finding finding a place in society um uh which was a con to, to contribute to society yeah. and still have money to pay taxes was in was is and an important to me as well as the rest of the guys that i and girls that i rehabilitated with and um so the resettlement part wasn't 
wasn't really fit for purpose. And so a lot of us have had to try and find uh, a route um, ourselves, yeah. um, which some have been really successful at and some, you know, um, are still kind of searching. And I'd probably class myself as one of those people that start, are still searching for that one thing that is going to you know, give us um, financial security. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, I... I hope that answers that question. Um, yeah, I mean, I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> just to be cheeky and ask that one. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I, I personally feel life is all about giving back. And that's what you do with your motivational speaking. Like today, there are people saying that, you know, they've been inspired by, you know, by listening in and stuff. And I think, you know, the only reason we're here now is because we've passed information down. And I see you as one of those sorts of people. We need more people like you in the world who learn from their experiences, use them in a positive way to pass them down to people. Yeah, I mean, you know, social media has been pretty rife recently, isn't it? Sometimes, I, you, I, you know, I don't think there's any point in putting anything negative on social media. Yeah. Because you're going to get negativity back. Yeah. Um, and there's people in the public eye over the last couple of days have been have been putting negative stuff out mm -hmm. um and uh i just don't there's no there's no good in it if, yeah. if you've got nothing good to say don't say anything i yeah. think um yeah. and we can all jump on social media and start adding to that pot of like uh, negativity if we want to but i just it's a waste of all of our time i um, totally agree negativity loves to be around negativity doesn't it yeah so we've just yeah. been this detach ourselves from that but likewise positivity likes to be around positivity absolutely yeah and um but sometimes getting those positive messages out there is 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 difficult and and it takes a real a real effort i think to um to try and make sure that those uh those messages sort of drown the the negativity that's out there and it's but yeah, it's absolutely. We're, attached, we're um, attracted to the drama, though. I think you look at anything on TV now, it's, it's always got to be a drama around it. And oh, we're yeah. drawn to it just because we find that interesting. But I think us as positive people, we need to do the same with the positive message to people, bring in this attraction. Oh, wow, that's good, that's good. But I think what you're doing with your positive talks is phenomenal because you make it so lighthearted, you make it fun, and you bring humour to these. So, my talk's completely inappropriate. I just talk about my balls most of the time, or ball. Yes, um, it's all good. When you bring the attraction to it, because you've got fantastic balls, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, actually, this is quite this is quite apt. So when I first did my my, my talks, um, I said that I was going to get a, a prosthetic testicle, and I wanted it in the shape of this. Oh, which is oh, for anyone... spiky trigger ball. <laughs> yeah, but I wanted it. I wanted to put a bell in it. And, uh, you know, like if you pressed it, it would light up. And I thought it was funny um, because I thought it'd be just, um, it, then it would give my wife no, no excuses. Um, They'd see you in a swimming pool, wouldn't they? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I used to make that into a joke and um, it was purely for my own amusement. I don't really care if nobody else finds it funny. <laughs> but I, that's what I love and it's like I know sometimes like with my bipolar and stuff I'll say certain things that I think are like hilarious to me because I will have a laugh and a joke about it but some people kind of just don't get it and I think sometimes that's because again it's the awkwardness that like, oh should we be laughing about this should we not be laughing about this do you know what I mean 
Yeah, and you know, I, I always think when whenever anybody puts up a post about OCD, I always think about you and the battles that you've had with it. And I know that sometimes when people put things up like that, that then they have not got OCD. And I know that it's a pretty debilitating uh, condition. And um, you know, when people sort of make light of it, it's not. Yeah. It's not a nice thing. It's, the thing I know is people think, oh, because I've got to be neat and tidy, I've got OCD. But when, when you actually get down to the crux of what OCD is, it, yeah. it's not about being neat and tidy. It's what leads to from not having things in my place or doing certain rituals. And people don't really understand that side of the OCD. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I, I like, I, I could put myself into that. I, I, don't, I don't know what I don't know, um, yeah. but I know that it's more serious than just like, Oh yeah, I want all my pencils lined up straight. It's more than yeah, just yeah. that. It's like, you know, when you have an urge to do a ritual, it's like a pain inside of you. You know, like you were talking about the yeah. physical pain. It's almost like a emotional pain inside of you that you you have that urge that you've got to do it. And sometimes I'll close my eyes and just kind of have a reason with myself, do you know what I mean? And 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 push that into a little ball and you know. Put it away. Yeah, you know what? I was often talking about fear, and um, you know, I remember um, when I first flew out to that patrol base. If if I could have paid someone literally everything I own in the world to get off that flight and go home, I would have done it because um, I was I was I was scared, and it was it was based um, a little bit about the unknown, also. As a medic, my job is was was real was it's a serious job, um, and you've got people's lives in your hand. And I was really really scared that I wouldn't be able to do my job to the required standard for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, however, for me, and I don't know if there's a similarity here. So taking that emotion, whatever that emotion was, and separating yourself from it, and kind of like leaving it on the side acknowledging it's there but trying to kind of move you know um move beyond it yeah and and again i always i think of this so if you if you're a dune fan the book dune written by frank herbert there's a there's a a passage in there about fear Uh, i'm not i'm not going to go into it but if it's quite an interesting one to read and um that's what i've always thought about fear as as um as a result of this little passage but that's for the listeners to go and do their own research all right okay cool um, it's called fear is the mind killer anyway if you google that then you'll get the whole uh, you'll get the whole passage all right okay i'll have a little look so before we finish up simon i want to know have you got any challenges coming up any new expeditions that you want to get your teeth in is it swimming 13 14 miles or is it swimming the channel or doing another somewhere? You know, I love to swim the channel, um, but there's a lot of admin that goes with that, and there's a lot of um, um, sort of obstacles to, to, to. You know, you have to be able to prove certain things. Is that because we're um, at the EU now? Because <laughs> you have to have your passport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'd love to. You know, I'd love to do that, um, but you kind of you need to have a team around you to to help you to sort of to facilitate that. Um, I do want to do the ice mile and do that, and that'll happen probably um, next year, maybe in in in, um, in January next year or December this year, yeah. depending on how cold the water gets. 
Um, and there is something that is in on the back burner, but um, and it involves something, you know, because I always try to revisit things that I, I had done before, and I can't go into a huge amount of detail, but nice. it, involves, it involves kayaking um, and not in this country. So um, hopefully I can redo something that I did a long time ago, um, but it's it's um it's in the making and i i you know if it didn't happen i'd look like a, i'd look like a fool wouldn't i so yeah. <laughs> i can't wait to hear more you keep going on about getting a kayak i'm gonna get a kayak because we we're yeah. on the coast in in folkestone and baz is always on about getting a kayak and just taking it out to sea yeah well honestly like kayaking or you know you guys could get um some of the, the stand-up paddle boards and um you know I mean, I'm considering getting a, a, a stand-up paddleboard just to sit on, because um, I know my I know my wife would like it as well. Uh, so yeah, you should do it. Definitely do it. It's so much fun. See, there you go. Yeah, well, I'll have one on because I I know you want to get a motorbike. <laughs> you could probably get a trailer for the motorbike and put the the kayak on the back of the trailer. Oh, yeah, talking. thanks for I the ideas. Tie it to my back. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for the suggestion. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Simon, like two questions. Number one, is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with? You know, any last thoughts at all whatsoever? Um Yeah, I just you know, really to encompass everything. You know, life is for living, um and you know, you've got to try and find out what you love and and and, and pursue that. And um, it doesn't matter what it is; it could be yoga, it could be walking, um, but find something that is separate from your normal life, which is yours, um, which gives you a little bit of time to think. Yeah. Um, you know, you get I get a lot of thinking done whilst I'm face down in the water, looking at the bottom of a pool or a lake. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, find something that's yours and that gives you a little bit of peace, which actually is critically, ironically, out of the way of a screen. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, the irony. So that brings us back to being outside, getting some fresh air, raising that heart rate a little yeah. bit. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. And like, if people want to know more about you, um, the the charity work that you do, the volunteer work that you do, or they want to, you know, get involved. I mean, obviously we've got our t-shirts on today, our amputees assemble, which I love. Do you know what? They're beautiful t-shirts, really nice and thick. They are lovely. Um, what can they do? Well, I mean, I've got my website. I've got a, I've, I've got bored over um, lockdown and made a new website. So um, if you go to simonharmer.com, um, check out there. There's not an awful lot on there, but it has got all the links to my um, social media. Um, and you know, if you do want a charity to support, then uh, Blesma, they're only a small charity. Um, they make their they make their pound stretch. They really, really um, use the money that they've got um, in a responsible way. Um, so Blesma is a British Limited Sex Services Association. And you know they they support they've supported me. Um, you know I can't really express in words really I suppose what they've done for me over the years. And one of those things is actually getting back into sort of dignified and rewarded work, um, which is something that um, 
you know, if you have got um, a disability or a medical condition, it's really important giving people the opportunity to do something that where which is which rewards them appropriately for their time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that 100% because when I was medically retired, you know, I'm thinking ex-police officer, 33 years old, what am I going to do? And it's like, you know, so that's why I started Rock Solid, but I can yeah. see how, you know, you want to introduce something meaningful and rewarding, you know, after everything has happened to you. So, oh, okay, I love that. We'll, we will look them up, definitely. Yeah, Blesma, awesome, awesome charity. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've loved this. I can't believe that hour's gone like so quickly. It really has. I could be here for hours, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so, guys, thank you so much for listening in. Thank you, Simon. We really do appreciate your time today. Um, guys, if you have enjoyed this, then please share it. As you know, we're all about, you know, being able to help people create their own version of health mentally and physically. Um, you know, so understanding their mind to control their bodies so they can be happier, healthier people all of this stuff is so so relevant so guys please give it a like give it a share um, because you never know who you're going to help today with this so we are going to um, finish here on the facebook live and carry on the after party as we normally say um, but have an absolutely fantastic day guys and we'll see you all soon thanks for listening to this episode of the fit mind project please support us on itunes and spotify by rating us and leaving us a review it helps us so much you can also watch these podcasts on youtube or on our rock solid facebook page at rock solid health this is what we're all about we're about growing a community of like-minded people that want to change their lives to feel better than they are at the moment we help them find their version of health so they can be healthier and happier. And remember guys, you're awesome.